Hello and welcome to the first episode of our new AI in Education series on the EdTech podcast, sponsored by Nord Anglia Education, and looking at how we ensure that education is the centre of gravity for AI. My name is Rose Luckin and I'm your host. I'm a professor of learner-centred design at UCL's Institute of Education and founder and CEO of Educate Ventures Research, an organisation that provides training and continuing professional development for educators, for small business owners, for organisations within the education space so that they can get up to speed with AI. Now, it really feels like AI has exploded in the public consciousness recently with innovation in chatbots and large language models revealed in headlines around the world. Whilst experts proclaim what technology is and isn't around the corner, there have been dire warnings from big tech on what holds should be put in place to regulate the market. Predictions that automation will free us up to do things that really matter at work and fears that the misuse of data will leave us more vulnerable than ever before. But in the realm of education, Great strides have been made with AI and other emerging technologies, and we're seeing deeper levels of personalization, automated, streamlined workflows, better machine tutoring, and smarter, smart content creation. And although it feels like these victories should put teachers and learners on an upward trajectory with AI, there are still barriers to overcome. Learners today are more familiar with technology than any of their previous generations, and yet the dangers of misuse and abuse will scale in tandem to the development and use of the technology. So it's vital that young people of today are prepared to understand and consume AI wisely and responsibly. And we hope that this new podcast series will help to contribute to the discussions about just how we do that and also contributes some much-needed integrity and expertise into the discussion. So in the spirit of sharing, let me now share with you who is in our Zoom studio with me today. I have Paul LeBlanc, President of Southern New Hampshire University, Kate Erica, Assistant Director of Curriculum at Nord Anglia Education, and Julie Henry, Freelance Education Correspondent. So let's get stuck into the questions straight away. And the first question I want to ask you about is... We often talk when we're thinking about educational technology about does it work? The number of times I've been asked, does a particular technology work or how do we know a particular technology works? I've heard politicians in the UK say uh, not infrequently, well, I'll support it if you can show me that it works. But that question is often very hard to answer because sometimes it works for one person and it doesn't work for another. It works in one context. It doesn't work in another. And now I think we're in an even more complicated situation because it's not just a question when it comes to AI of asking, does it work and trying to unpack what that means for whom, when, in what situations. But we also need to help people within education to understand something about how the AI works, because we're in a situation where there's a big imbalance between the very few people who know quite a lot about AI and most people who know very little about how the AI works. And we want a responsible, intelligent society to help us take forward AI in a beneficial way for that society. So how do we get to that intelligent society? How do we get there? Because it feels like we might have to fight for it. We really want to make sure that everybody 
has a base understanding of AI that enables them to leverage that technology to best effect. And probably that's more important for educators than most other people, because we're going to expect our educators not only to leverage the technology effectively, but to help young people to know how to use it too. So Paul, I'd love to come to you first on this. I know that uh, back in March, you wrote about the need for multiple intersecting roles to work together to act as a bulwark against an AI tsunami. We need ethicists, philosophers, sociologists, psychologists, lawyers joined together hip to hip. So how do you see this playing out and how might we help it play out positively when it comes to preparing young people for the world that they're going to be going into? Great question, Rose, because I think when we often talk about the intersection of technology and education, especially, we're often talking about point solutions, like does this math program work? Does this piece, right? And this is much bigger than that. I would um, compare it to social media. If you think about the impact of social media, it had enormous, uh, it, it sort of washed over our society in ways that didn't work very well. Like looking back, we know how wrong we got it. And if you think about its impacts in um, the impacts on adolescents, young people in the United States, there is a mental health crisis underway that we've never seen before. And a lot of it is being now tied. Clinicians, researchers are tying it back to the impacts of social media. And young women, for example, just one terrible, stunning fact, 20, you know, CDC report of a few months ago reported that 25% of American adolescent girls have planned their suicide in the last 12 months and 12 or 13% have tried. And we've never seen anything like this. And they are tying it back to things like social media. Think about the impact on our election and our politics. Um, so this is a good example, I think a sort of warning case about what happens if you don't bring in cross-sector experts to think hard about the impacts of, in this case, AI. Universities are the best place to do that. It is the place where we gather expertise from across all domains, social scientists, psychologists, ethicists, philosophers, and scientists and researchers like yourself, Rose. So I think we have to place it in that context. This is big. This is, this is paradigm shifting technology. This is like the invention of electricity and steam. I have colleagues who dismiss me on this one. They're like, Oh God, get over yourself. You're falling prey to the, to the hype. Um, but I don't think it's hype. I mean, if you take a look at the, what AI has done in domains like medicine with things like protein folding. This was work that people were doing for decades to solve for one. And all of a sudden, in a year, we unfolded medical, I mean, just incredible breakthroughs, right? Someone gave me a video of myself um, saying things I've never said based on 30 seconds of video that they captured. And I wouldn't have known if that, like I would have known it wasn't, I didn't say that, but it, it, no one would know, right? So think about, I mean, that's scary as we go into the 2024 election. So we're gonna need universities fully in. And let's remind ourselves that we are in what some people have called the in-between times. This is the cloudy, messy period that economists like Carlotta Perez describe. You know, this has been leading up, AI is not new. And then you have a catalyzing moment I would say it's November 30th, 2022, when ChatGPT gets released. And now we're cast into this period of upheaval. And if you look historically, bad things happen during those periods, like wars, governments get overturned, right? Whole The whole world of work gets overturned. This is what happened in the industrial age, for example. And it's not going to take a year. We're in the beginning of this process. It's going to take some years before we sort this. So how do we do this? Um, 
We need policymakers to be way smarter than they are today. In the United States, we have policymakers that think the internet is a series of pipes still, like it's befuddling. So we need informed policymaking and we need universities to step up. And along the way, I think people are desperate. They're hungry for good guidance. You said, what does the lay person, the everyday person think about this? I, I hope in a much more positive analogy that we see what happened in early days of COVID when we all became, you know, amateur epidemiologists. Everyone was reading. Everyone, like, books were being consumed. People were, we're going to have to do that again, right? We're going to have a societal movement led by universities and knowledge makers and journalists and policymakers all coming in together. I agree completely. I think it is that kind of shift. We have had a catalytic moment we are in a phase of upheaval and we have to learn from what happened with social media. We really got it wrong with social media and we have to do better this time. And it is something I worry about. But I think what you're saying about smarter policy workers, universities stepping up, all of this is important. And that that piece about trying to engage people en masse and helping them to start understanding what this technology is about how it works in a non-technical sense. And as I say, I think educators are rather at the sharp end of this. And so, Kate, I know you are an educator. um, You're an educational leader. In a sense, you are right at the heart of the school's sector in respect to the challenges that we have around AI. So how do you think we can best go about helping our teachers helping them to feel that they've got the right skills, helping organizations have appropriate policies and strategies so that they themselves have the capacity, but that they can also develop that capacity and capability within the young people that they're educating. Sorry, that's a really tough question to start off with. <laughs> no, it's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, thank you, Rose. So yes, I'm the Assistant Director for Curriculum for the Nord Anglia Global Education Team. And what we see with a lot of our teachers is actually they look to AI and see opportunity. So we see some really exciting and innovative classroom practice where students are able to engage with AI and debate with it or speak to a character in a novel or do all sorts of exciting practices to, to make learning experiences rich and interactive. So I think a lot of our educators reach for the opportunity there and really see the potential of something that that could be groundbreaking and not just in the classroom, but also in helping teachers with their planning and giving them ideas that then they can innovate from and develop further. I think the difficult part with AI is when you think at a systems level. So the tricky part is that when we look to superstructures for legislation like governments or global organizations, that legislation doesn't yet exist. And we know, I mean, governments have put things together, but specifically thinking in how it will apply to educational practice, that still needs a lot of like, finessing and refining. And we know that when we think that big, education can be slow to change. We still don't use the internet in assessments yet. And so think how long it will be before we can start to think about how to integrate AI meaningfully into all of our educational practice. And that's where the tension is, because innovative as our teachers are, they are caught between a rock and a hard place. They want to reach for the opportunity and the innovative practice, but at the same time, they are beholden to high stakes 
examinations and they want their students to get the best possible outcomes. And currently, we still do those on pen and paper. We don't have any sense of what it would mean for those to interact with any of the forms of technologies that have emerged in the last 30 years. So I think it's difficult for schools. I think schools look for guidance because much as they want to reach out into a new and exciting space and open that up to their students, they also don't want to misstep. And they know that for their students, they want them to get the best possible outcome because it matters and to go forward in the world. So we need an alignment here with both what schools want to do and with wider organizations that work in education so that all of our schools can feel supported in using AI and other technologies in classroom practice. That's very, very interesting. Wise words, Kate, wise words. I think that is a very key observation, that piece about attention for educators. Yes, many can see innovative opportunities, but there are risks. And I think education is at a particularly sharp end of this debate, particularly school education, but not exclusively. I'm sure it's an issue. Well, I know it's an issue in higher education as well. And that is safeguarding is such a huge part of what you're expected to do. And here you are being presented on the one hand with something truly innovative. And yet on the other hand, that same thing is also implicitly risky. And you have this 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 imperative around safeguarding. So I, I I think the tension is felt very strongly. You're right within education. I can completely appreciate that. I think the other important point that you've highlighted is the enormous power that assessment has. You said you know we're still doing exams using paper and pencil. I've spent the last thirty plus years looking at AI in education, and I have always felt that it could be an amazing tool to, to reform assessment, to allow us to assess new things, to allow us to assess in new ways, to really innovate in that space. But it's incredibly difficult to do. And yet, until we do do that, understandably, parents and students want the assessment that's going to get them to the next stage of their life. So we're always in this tricky position. So really important points there. Julie, I'm going to come to you next because you've been an education correspondent for quite a while. So you have seen many, many things happen. And I'd really love to know how you're seeing what you're watching unfold at the moment with respect to AI, how you think policymakers, governments are behaving, how they should behave. Do you see this as something that is a pivot point that is the kind of significant change that Paul, myself, Kate, <clears throat> believe it to be? Or do you think it's it's another flash in the pan? <laughs> I've been an education correspondent for more than 20 years. And what has surprised me is the lack of change, not in terms of what happens in the classroom, despite advances in technology and digital technology. You know, we still have the model uh, and we still depend on the model of the teacher in the classroom teaching a group of children um, en masse. Um, and I think the pandemic showed us, uh, demonstrated a couple of things. One, that digital learning could be possible and could be possible at scale. 
and that in certain areas it was desirable and we've kept hold of, of some of the things we learn um, from that, from those lockdowns. Um, but it, I think it also just demonstrated the model of the teacher in the classroom teaching children face-to-face was preferable for most children most of the time um, and for a host of reasons. So I think we need to, you know, that model has been in there for, you know, centuries and and we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think within that landscape, AI is a tool that can be used and should be used. I mean, you know, it's imperative that young, that children probably from an earlier age and increasingly early early age, are taught about what AI is and how to use it. And perhaps most importantly, its shortcomings. I think where policymakers and schools and universities are finding it difficult and grappling with it in the short term, I'm talking about, not in the kind of long term that Paul was talking about, is the extent to which it is used and how much it should be used by pupils, individual pupils within the classroom and out of the classroom, and what the risks might be there and how you might mitigate against those risks. You know, do we do we say, yes, use it to write the first draft of an essay, or do we say, actually, that for the, the processes involved in that writing of the first draft, retrieval of knowledge, deciding what the key points are, putting them down coherently, putting them in an order, going back and editing. Can we lose that? Can we let ChatGPT write that without any consequences in terms of knowledge acquisition, in terms of um, writing skills and um, in terms of, you know, skills development? I'm not sure we've got an answer. To, I mean, that is the short term question. And as as um, Paul and, and Kate have indicated, there's, the guidance is is few and far between on that. And that puts teachers in a really difficult position, doesn't it? I think you're absolutely right. And actually, that's a brilliant answer to tee up the next question. Can I respond to something Julie said? Because I think it's just brilliant, which is I think when we look back at the pandemic, we will realize that while the public schools are closed, at least in the U.S., the price was higher. You know, we didn't know at the time, so people were making the best decision they could, <clears throat> but not just in learning loss, but actually much more on the sort of psychosocial development of young kids. We paid a very high price. One of my trustees is the superintendent of one of America's largest school systems. And she would say, again, when we look back, we will likely conclude, especially since we know children weren't at high risk, that this was a mistake, that we, they paid the price in other ways. But I think if we separate out the question of what happens when we bring young kids into a classroom, there is the learning, but there is the social, relational, human being with each other piece. And I think the part that we're going to maybe, my optimistic side says, we're going to have to rethink the learning because look at fundamentally, human beings will no longer be the smartest entity on the planet when it comes to declarative knowledge. We have to like rethink the noetic economy of our world and our society. Like what, 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 what is the role of knowledge? How do we define knowledge? Like, these are the questions for philosophers like James Bridle has a great book, Ways of Being, on this question. Uh, but the second question is maybe this gives us the opportunity to focus a lot more 
on the most important thing, which is the human, the relational, how we engage. You know, George Siemens, who's I think the Rose Lincoln of the US, your colleague uh, who works with us often says, the fundamental shift you'll see in education is less emphasis on the epistemological ways of knowing how we know and more focus on the ontological. How are we in the world? The navigation of what it means to be human. Because that's this is the pose, this is the question posed by AI. We're not the smartest entities any longer at least not in the realms of declarative knowledge. And I can, if I could use Julia, your example, I was a writing teacher for many years and I was having this conversation with some of our faculty who teach writing and they're split. There's like, absolutely not. You can't use AI, you can't use ChatGPT in my writing class. And I was arguing, I would embrace it. What I would say is use ChatGPT to write that essay, but here's what you have to do. You have to include with your essay, a list of the prompts you use to create that because Prompt writing now is a higher cognitive function, not a lower one. You have to raise your bar intellectually. And then I want to see the ways, I want demonstration of the ways you took the product and made it better. Like Because what we know about most genre of AI, it creates pretty mediocre product. It's okay. It's like middle ground product. How did you make it better? How did you put it in your own voice? How did you adjust to this particular audience that I gave you? And then lastly, how did you test its veracity? How do you know that the declarative things you said are true? Like those are the skills that are going to be really, really important in the future. They're higher cognitive skills. They're not lower. But what AI is doing is it's taking the lower and middle level knowledge making and displacing it. Sorry. But I think Julie's sort of uh, examples were just spot on for the kinds of questions we'll grapple with. I completely agree. And I think what you're saying is so important. I think human interaction is absolutely fundamental. We learned that so much in the pandemic. And I think if we get it right with AI, we will still have lots of human interaction, maybe even more, but it'll be different. You know, we do need to to raise the cognitive bar, so to speak. And that means that we need to look at assessment differently, because I think the reason we have the AI we have that's very good at declarative knowledge is because that's what we've treasured Mm -hmm. through our education systems, through our assessment systems. We now need to learn to treasure much more sophisticated cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. You're right. It is about rethinking our relationship to knowledge. But I absolutely fundamentally agree that human interaction is still absolutely central to education and we have to move away from any thinking that somehow this technology this ai is going to mean that we need less teachers or less educators or less support staff we don't we really need to rethink what our human intelligence is for in the world and how we build the right kind of human intelligence within our population. So thank you for picking up on Julie's point, Paul. That was great. And I loved your example of how to go about a writing task, embracing ChatGPT, because students are going to use it and and finding ways to make it part of that, I think is really important. And the next question I wanted to ask is, is highly related to this, because I'd just love to know what examples of AI in education we've got so far that, that you think have some potential that you're seeing penetrating the world of education that you feel could have some benefits already. It's early days, but there's a lot happening. And also within that, where are the challenges 
with these potentially beneficial forms of AI in education. Kate, I'm going to come to you first, because I said before, you know, in the school sector, you're right at the heart of what's going on here. So I think the the potential for AI, when we look at examples in the classroom, is, as Paul was discussing earlier, the opportunity to be able to take something and then go a step further. So, for example, taking a model answer and then considering how to make it better or considering how you can go a step deeper in an understanding of a character by using AI to prompt then and take you further because it can give you that information as a naturalistic conversation. I think there's something here that you were touching on before where we need to go beyond declarative knowledge and summary tasks and think about how AI can do some of that heavy lifting so that we can get to tasks that have a form of authenticity. What AI does for us is actually make us question the relevance and purpose of education itself. So why is it that we're doing what we're doing? Why is it that I'm summarizing a paragraph in a book when that can be done so quickly and easily by something else? We know that from the research that that we've done at North Anglia, but also that's, that's out there in the research literature, that the generation that's just left school, Gen Z, feels least prepared for the world that they're going into, but also simultaneously the most burdened. They're inheriting problems like climate change that they feel the pressure to solve. And they have incredible technological tools that are going to help them to do so. And so when we're thinking about how we can use some of these new technologies like AI in the classroom, how can we start thinking about using them to take us forward in some of the skills that we know that we're going to need? The generation going out into the world is going to be the most diverse that's ever lived in terms of how globalized they are and how many different perspectives they will encounter. And those are some of the social skills that we really need, that we need students to be enacting and practicing in the classroom. We need them to be able to take information and apply it to really rich, complex, authentic tasks and to know what their role is in relation to that information. What is the point of this for them? And students have been asking this forever. Like, what is the point of me doing this? You know, we all asked it about algebra, maths, or when will I ever need to know how to calculate the hypotenuse of a triangle or or whatever it is. But actually, that's a meaningful question to ask at the moment. If something else has all the knowledge, what is the point of me having it? As in, what am I going to do with it that feels really meaningful? And how then will that enact what I want to be as a person, as a human, both now in this moment and as I grow up into whatever I will be in the future? So we're already starting to see creative uses of AI. But I think as we look forward, thinking about how the relevance of our educational experiences can be enhanced by AI rather than challenged by them will be very interesting. That point about relevance of our education experiences, I think, is really critical, Kate. Thank you. And I I do think it's challenging, isn't it, for the whole educational community. On the one hand, you've got this noisy, 
world of AI that's everywhere and moving quickly and you feel, oh, must do something to react. On the other hand, you need to be really thoughtful and ask why you're doing this. What's it for? How do we do this in a way that is strategically appropriate that really helps to equip our students for, for their future world? So it, it, it is a difficult time, I think. And I'm, I'm going to come to you next, Julie, because Kate and Paul are particularly innovative educators, I would suggest. And maybe not everybody is quite as innovative or not able to be quite as innovative. How do you see this unfolding as we move forward? How can the broad range of educators, wherever they are, whatever their challenges are, what kind of impact do you think it's having on them and will it have on them? My perceptions are mainly, you know, UK, what's happening in state schools generally, independent sector tends to be a bit more innovative. But my uh, my perception is that AI is being used, but in a kind of piecemeal fashion rather than in any structured or, or structured approach or, or kind of structured policy way. Um, and I think partly the reason for that is that there, there is a lack of guidance at the moment out there about what schools should be doing. Um, the Department for Education in England um, put out a call for evidence at the beginning of the summer about um, asking people how AI will impact education, how it's being used, what the pros and cons are. Um, you know, we haven't had anything back from that as yet. So, you know, schools are in a kind of wait and see position. The only thing they've had guidance on is um, when it comes to assessment and when it comes to, um, you know, uh, coursework that counts for assessment, you know, do it in the classroom, don't let kids do it at home where they can use chat GPT. Um, that's been the extent of it. I mean, I think, I think in the, again, I'm talking short term, I've got, I haven't got the vision that Paul has got in terms of, you know, what happens down the line. But I think, I think the main impact in the short term is, is on teachers' um, uh, day-to-day lives and the demands that are made on them and the, the various ways that AI can can help with that. You know, there are definite possibilities there and, and some that teachers are using, you know, marking, using AI to mark students' work and to give students feedback, um, drawing up lesson plans, even some curriculum design, writing school reports. I wrote a story about teachers using AI to write the annual school reports, um, setting quizzes on topics, um, analysing performance data, all those kind of um, tasks that are quite time consuming, potentially uh, freeing up time for, for the kind of human, human interaction stuff that we talked about and that we, we've identified as, as really important. Um, and, and similar things into, with pupils using um, AI, they go home, write an essay, feed it into ChatGPT and ask for where the weaknesses are or what they've missed out um, and get some feedback um, from that. It's good for revision because it can summarise large amounts of information and pull out key points quite easily. You know, and I know I've got kids, I know that they're they're dabbling in it um, and haven't been told not to, which is good. You know, so I think there's a general consensus that, that there are uh, there are things it can improve in in classroom practice and and in terms of children helping themselves and in their in their individual learning. 
you know, there's been suggestions about its use as a personal tutor that that children can ask it questions and and a, a, an AI chatbot will respond. Um, and you know, you can do adaptive learning so that the questions get harder dependent on on the children's level of knowledge. I'm a bit I, I, I'm skeptical about all that because I think anybody that's used a, a customer service chat bot will know that its ability to handle anything beyond the very most basic of instructions um, is you know it, it can't handle it. So I don't know whether the technology in education is more sophisticated when people talk about um, personalized learning like this and personalized tuition. Um, that maybe be um, something that Paul can uh, allude to. Um, so there are all these uses, but as, as we've already said, when it comes down to assessment, you've got a major stumbling block because whatever the ch- child's use of AI on an individual basis or within the classroom, when they're in their exam hall, they're on their own. There's, there's, no, there's no getting around that fact. Um, and schools have to be massively aware of that. I, I read a piece recently about uh, from an, ind- uh, an independent school head teacher that talked about moving um, the school model or the, the 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 need to shift from a model of a, a ostensibly structured on knowledge acquisition to one where students uh, were being taught how to assess and to evaluate and to use the content that is available at the the, the click of a button. That's all well and good, but the current system here. Is 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 more or less based on knowledge knowledge acquisition and and your ability to recall and and use that knowledge in 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 a in a structured way. So you know we've got that sticking point. Um, and you, you know exam board responses to the Department for Education um, call for evidence were saying that in the in in the world of AI, with the emergence of AI, marking exam condition scenarios, traditional exams, were more important than ever to ensure fairness and reliability in assessment. You know, you, they would say that, wouldn't they? Yes, this is the point, that if we have AI that can ace the kind of assessments that those kinds of exams test, we need to move on. As humans, we need to be much more sophisticated, as Paul said at the start. You know, it's those let's ramp up the cognitive processing, the thoughts, higher order thinking skills, all of those kinds of things. And we have to rethink assessment. I think it's a real challenge. It was great to hear those really practical examples that you gave, Julia, what you've heard from teachers and what you've heard from students. I think the point you make about personal tutors and personal you know, chatbots, personalised learning, have your tutor with you 24-7, these are the kinds of things that, that we're hearing. And, and yes, absolutely, the kinds of chatbots that are now possible will be more sophisticated than we've been used to. But, you know... When I first entered the world of AI in education some 30 years ago, we were at this point with intelligent tutoring systems. The belief was that even with old-fashioned AI, or good old-fashioned AI, as some people call it, GoFi, you could build an intelligent tutor that would tutor, not teach, would tutor students in specific subject areas, particularly STEM subjects, maths, physics, and, and language learning too. And some of these systems were actually really quite good. They didn't replace the teacher, but they could be a good supplement. But 
what we gradually realized was that actually, if you're thinking about a formal education context, a classroom, a lecture hall, you have to take the people into consideration. You have to take into consideration that there's a teacher and that teacher has a role. So I find it really interesting that there's so much emphasis on this one-to-one. The number of times I'm hearing Bloom's Two Sigma paper quoted, you know, the gold standard education is one-to-one. We can give every student a personal tutor. Yes, but is my answer. That personal tutor must work in a way that integrates and collaborates with the teacher, with the parent, with peers. It's it's it would be dangerous, I think, to go down the road where too much emphasis is put on that one-to-one machine human. And I think it's really interesting, as I say, that, you know, sort of 25 years on, sometimes it's a little bit like deja vu, <laughs> despite the increased sophistication of the technology. And Paul, I'm going to come to you next, if that's okay, to get your views about this. And also, I'd like you to think a little and talk to us a little about one other thing that I think we're seeing a lot of at the moment, and we might call it white noise. There are a few very, very loud voices in the world of AI, and they are dominating the conversation. And I don't know how we push back from that, how we rebalance the situation where you have, you know, a minority having such a huge amount of influence and voice in this. So, sorry, I've given you a bit of a tough challenge there, Paul, but over to you. <laughs> no, not at all. I want to start, though, with your last point, which is I think if we use AI in education such that we see young people hold up in their bedrooms engaging solo with an AI entity of whatever kind, it will be a massive failure, right? This is That's a sort of extension of our social media example earlier where young people are confusing likes with relationships and likes are not the same they're they're paper thin and they don't stand in right so if we can use ai so that students can have access to the kind of declarative knowledge which we prize and center right now and free them to be engaged in the world differently to be engaged with others to really develop things that are much harder than declarative knowledge like empathy like navigating cultures that look different than your own. These are things that for many of our educational systems are rather secondary. We hope that that's something you develop along the way. What if that became the primary aspect of what we can do, allowing AI to do a lot of the lower level knowledge work? But to go to your question about, you raise this bigger question about, you know, the discourse. So one is we're going to have to be comfortable being in the messy space for quite a while. Like anyone who... You know, Julie gave me way too much credit about crystal balls. My crystal ball is very cloudy. Um, and I think you have to be comfortable with that. We we won't know. We're gonna have to sort through this. And I think that, you know, Paul we can't look to policymakers, not only because they're often inept, but also generally speaking, policy follows practice. Like the best policy is looking at the world as it happens and then trying to respond to it. So we're going to, and teachers, I just feel so bad for because they're in the fray, as Julie said, and they're not getting a lot of guidance. So the moment, I think the sort of, you know, this is the leadership moment for people who lead schools, you know, people like Kate, people myself, others who are in that role where we sit in between because we, our teachers need great support and great guidance, and they're not getting a whole lot of that right now. 
Um, so, and then I, I always look to universities as the place that has most powerfully brings together the disciplines and the domain, the thinkers and researchers who can help us sort. And in a way, kind of inspired by AI, what we need right now are better questions. Like we, our questions aren't very well framed. So we're always being responsive to the latest thing that lands on our doorstep or the latest example of misuse or use of AI generally. And now to go to your question, I think that why this becomes hard and how we find, you know, there's a small number of voices. I mean, you've raised the fundamental question of capitalism here, which is that massive AI systems, the massive deployment of resources that are required to run huge LLMs, for example, uh, are really in the hands of only a few billionaire or massive corporate entities, right? It's it's um, AWS going to war with Meta, going to war with Microsoft, going to war with, um, and I use that analogy because they're winners and losers. Um, I use that phrase because they're winners and losers in this space. So that's a hard one. And I do think that there is some promising, and Rosie, you're more expert than I am in this, looking at OpenAI, not OpenAI, the company, but OpenAI, the sense of like we can have access to other kinds of LLMs, which are, by the way, more limited, often more accurate because their domains are are less broad, like i.e. the whole world, and also less environmentally impactful because they don't need the sheer processing power. Uh, we don't talk very much about the environmental impact of AI, but it has massive uh, impact. So I think, um, you know, so you raise the problem of capitalism. And, uh, and, and I don't know how we sort this one out because to some extent, both the state and our education systems work in service to capitalist models of how economies should work. A lot of, when we think about what we do in schools, especially in lower income communities, is we teach kids to be good workers. Someone said, you know, but in the future with AI, you know, employers are going to want critical thinkers. And I was like, God, you know, there are a lot of employers, if they employ critical thinkers, they'd burn the business down. So is that really what employ is that really what the workforce wants? So I think there's a larger conversation and we're having it now generally, which is the failure of late stage capitalism to fix the world's problems, right? I mean, if you read wonderful 2016 book called The Mushroom at the End of the World, which is its own great title, by the way, highly recommend it, but award-winning book in sociology. But, you know, we are seeing the failures. It's late-stage capitalism that doesn't take into account the downstream impacts on the environment. So in the U.S., we could just outsource all of our dirty industry to China and complain about China. But the reality, there's a reason why it's an environmental disaster to be in, in much of Asia right now. It's because we offloaded it, right? We're going off on a tangent. I think we go back to this question of we're going to have to um, think about the ways in which we can democratize uh, AI. And I do think it has that potential, but I think the window is very narrow. I think this is an uphill battle that we're fighting. Um, what are the ways that we can democratize AI? And Europe is probably going to be the place that leads the way. If you think about, again, I'm going to vote George, who's my colleague and works with us. Um, as George would say, if you look broadly, China's version of AI is for the public good, quote unquote. And that's going to mean state surveillance and massive application of control. Um, the U.S. is going to be anything goes, very typical American, right? So lack of control and lots of bad things. But it's actually, you know, uh, Europe, which, for example, with the GTPR, is give us some guidance, some policy guidance, some privacy and data, and how we have to think about reporting when you're using AI. Um, and 
and other places will look. So California, which has huge influence on American policy, is actually emulating Europe in terms of its privacy policymaking around education and student data. Um, so there are a number of these things, I think, which will be incredibly hard to sort through. So it's a really pretty poor answer, but there's an opportunity to get it right. And if you think, oh, well, that's really sort of, you know, pretty thin ice to be skating on, Paul, if you say there's a po possibility. I will say this. If you again go to look at, take a look at the work of somebody like Carlotta Perez, an economist who talks about what happens to the world when paradigm shifting technologies hold, a lot of the things that seem intractable actually get blown up. They get flipped. And there is a, and I believe that work is going to flip. I believe the nomadic economy of our world is going to flip. Things that seem really valuable today will not be valuable tomorrow. And things that weren't very much uh, given much status are given a lot more status. And I'll give you one example, then I'll stop. In a world in which knowledge making is now much more powerfully done by AI, I don't know what happens. I don't know how much need we have for accountants. I don't know how much need we have for lawyers. I don't. I think whole swaths of the workforce. These are high paying, high status jobs in our world. And we have enormous need for amazing teachers. We should flood our schools with social workers and counselors and great teachers. We in America, we need to rebuild a mental health system that's been decimated. We have to fix a broken criminal justice system that doesn't work anymore. Those jobs can't be done by AI, but they aren't the jobs that we pay very well for, and we don't afford them much status. And we don't even like to have many of them. Like how few teachers can we get by in the school? How few prison counselors can we use in this in, in, in this facility? In a world where all those other jobs are getting displaced, maybe it's those human jobs that once again get actually afforded status and and the jobs we can do and should do and we're not doing them very well now so that's my more optimistic side i like that more optimistic side i would love to see a flip where we do start to recognize those very human-centered jobs and rethink what we value but i was very struck by what you were saying about democratizing ai being important with which i agree completely but that the window of opportunity is really small and that is the bit that i worry about for all the years i've been involved in ai and education i've always believed that it has the potential to be a really force for good to help us build more equal societies but everything I'm seeing at the moment is going in exactly the opposite direction. And I think we do need to, to raise that and, and to try and see how we grab this small window of opportunity and make sure it doesn't get wasted. I think you're absolutely right about that. I'm going to stay optimistic, but I have to say, I think it's going to be really hard and it's going to take those of us who feel strongly about this to make sure that we are constantly getting our voices heard making the arguments, making coherent arguments, drawing together the evidence and showing what good things can happen, which I know you're you're doing and, and you're going to do more of at Southern New Hampshire. Kate, I'm going to come to you for a comment on this. You know, you and I have talked before about AI for good, how we make sure we use AI for good. How do you see this from your perspective? I mean, you are educating within the organization you work for, some of our future leaders, I'm sure. How, how how can we make sure they have the right skills and understanding of the AI, but also the appreciation of the need for this reevaluation? While you and, and Paul were talking, I was actually thinking back to the work that you did with Elise Eckhoff and Charlotte Webb on the ethical framework, so the data ethics framework for use of AI. 
And that was built around three key pillars of accountability and transparency and responsible innovation. And what I was thinking about is how important it is that we know ourselves where we want to sit in relation to AI. Having an ethical standpoint is about more than the legislation. It's about knowing as an organization, as a school, as a teacher, even as a student, where you sit in response to the use of AI, in the use of student data or security, in the use of co-creation, or how we use innovative technologies to ensure that we don't, for example, perpetuate bias or systemic inequalities that already exist. And I think what's really important is when you were talking about democratic AI, I was also thinking about how empowering our communities in their use of AI is a democratic process and how important it is for us to have the conversation together to do the sense making about how do we want to use this and why do we use it in that way? Where do we sit in relation to this? Do we know? Do we agree? And has is that a conversation that there's the space to have at the moment? When technology comes along like this, it's very easy for us to feel like the change is being done to us. And I'm sure AI will not be the last time that this happens. But by creating ethical frameworks for ourselves, and we're lucky enough to have one as, as Lord Anglia now, but because of the work that you did, it enables us to have a touch point that centers us in relation to the disruptive technology that's just emerged, which makes it a less uncertain space. It makes it less potentially frightening to go into and also means that you can have a shared response. That's so interesting, Kate, and a great response. Yes, accountability, transparency, responsible innovation. And I really think your point about needing to think about where we sit in relation to AI and creating a space for that conversation is fundamentally important to how this plays out. And the role of things like an ethical framework to give people something, something, a touch point of certainty at a time of great deal of uncertainty is also important. And it it brings me back to Julie to have the last word here. You were saying a while ago about the lack of guidance for teachers. And I think Kate's picked up on that point with the the kind of point about ethical frameworks, which can certainly help. But I'd love to get your take on the conversation you've just heard as a journalist who's been an education correspondent for over 20 (laughs) years. I'm sure you have a very, very interesting reaction to to what we've been discussing, and I'd love to hear it. I I mean... Ethical frameworks, kind of mission statements, all those kind of things, all well and good written out somewhere. But, you know, the devil is is so often in the detail. So I mean, 90% of the time. Uh, and you can have a statement that is that, that that reads brilliantly, and in reality, no one is adhering to it or doing anything that's on it. You know, that bigger picture, I feel I feel as though it's beyond me um, to comment on almost. And, I, you know, I just think what is the average teacher sitting in front of uh, in front of a class or sitting with, you know, a pile of work in front of her or him? Uh, you know, what uh, what is she thinking about 
where AI may or may have not been used in that and what she's supposed to be teaching pupils in the classroom and how it's supposed to be integrating with whatever her subject specialism is. You know, I and I feel for them. I really feel for 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 um, the lack of guidance out there. Uh, you know, with all these things, the risk of the unintended consequence is massive. It's just massive. Um, and to be honest, I don't know how you guard against that. As you know, we talked about social media earlier. We're at a point now where it doesn't look good. It doesn't like we can put the genie back in the bottle to any degree. Um, and we've just got to educate people about the risks of it and try and limit their use to, to some degree. And I would imagine it'll be the same with AI. That's about as much as I can offer. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting. I feel for the teacher just like you, I think it is hard. And I think Paul's point about leadership, this is a time for good leadership. We really need good leadership. And we also need actionable policies that make that practical action possible for everybody. If there's one thing I've learned over the years about innovation, about technology, it's very much in line with what Michael Barber would say. You'll only get the innovation if you bring the workforce with you. You know, every teacher needs to be upskilled, needs to feel confident with whatever it is that's expected of them. And that means they need really good leadership too. And that, that feels like where we're getting to. Now, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So we have to, to call an end to the debate. And it's been an amazingly rich debate that's visited areas that I wasn't quite anticipating, but I'm really pleased that we did because I think it's opened up a lot of issues that I hope that our listeners will find thought-provoking. In fact, I'm sure our listeners will find thought-provoking. So it just leaves me to thank you, Julie Henry, Paul LeBlanc, Kate Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today on the EdTech podcast. It's been lovely to have you in our pod studio. And I know our audience will absolutely love the discussion that we've just had. Thank you, everyone for joining me in our little Zoom pod studio. It's been great to have you with us and wonderful to have each of your contributions to this first episode in our new AI in Education series. And we've got a lot more to come, including a look at the intersection of neuroscience and AI, the extent of AI education around the world, what's coming next in emerging technologies that we need to prepare for, and if AI will be used as a tool for equity, in learning. Thank you so much to Nord Anglia Education for sponsoring this series on the EdTech podcast. And I hope wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical, and that it's given you something to use or to share with your teams or your friends or yourself in the coming days. If you'd like more information on the series and our wonderful guests, please visit the EdTech podcast website at theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. To see how Educated Ventures Research is using AI, is providing continuing professional development about AI for educators and helping companies to build their AI roadmap, please go to the Educate Ventures Research website, educateventures.com, or join the conversation in LinkedIn. You've been listening to the AI in Education, our data-driven future series, performed in collaboration with the EdTech podcast and presented by myself, Rose Luckin. Have a great week wherever you are.